Today's episode is brought to you by Bistrapay. Are you an immigrant in Canada thinking about moving your money from your home country? Or are you an international student looking for the cheapest way to get your tuition fees and stipend? Or maybe you're a freelancer that wants to get the full value for your work but worried about exchange rates and transfer charges? Try Bistrapay. Bistrapay is a platform that connects you with people in your vicinity that need the currency you have. Bistrapay puts the power of money transfer in your hands. It's free, fast, and safe. To learn more, please visit www.bistrapay.com. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Fresh Start Podcast, a show where we share success principles, explore the stories, experiences, and journey of real people in order to provide newcomers with strategies to succeed. My name is David Ojainka. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Navid Ashard. Navid is a member of Manu Life's executive leadership team with over 25 years of industry experience and has a deep understanding of the global life insurance industry. Rejoining Manu Life in 2014, Navid was appointed as president and CEO of Manu Life Singapore, where he was responsible for the overall development of Manulife's business operations in Singapore. This included key business segments, protection, retirement solutions, high net worth and wealth management across a multi-channel distribution platform. Prior to this role, he spent three years in a key leadership position at a major global reinsurance company with a focus on business and product development globally. Having initially joined Manulife in 1995, Navid held a variety of business roles in Toronto and Boston. Just prior to leaving Manulife in 2011, he was a senior vice president, product and insurance risk management, responsible for new products and insurance risk globally. Navid holds a BSc in actuarial math from Concordia University. He is a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and of the Canadian Institute of Actuaries and is a member of the American Academy of Actuaries. He served as Deputy President Life Insurance Association of Singapore and is a board member of Ascent Canada promoting Pan-Asian leadership. Please help me in welcoming Navid Ashad. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Navid. Well, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on with you. So let's quickly dive into things. Looking at your profile, I was very, very inspired by your achievements and accomplishments over the years. But I want us to go to the beginning. As a son of immigrants, can you tell us what it was like growing up in Canada? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I, I was born in Pakistan, uh, but uh, I grew up in Canada. My family uh, emigrated to Canada when I was about three years old. So really, Canada is almost all I've known in terms of growing up. Um, it was interesting times because you know, there, there's some new language being uh, used now in terms of diversity and privilege that I didn't, wasn't really aware of back then growing up. You sort of dealt with hardships as you as you went along and you, re- you realize looking back that yeah, I didn't really have privilege. I had to always think about uh, you know, myself and my culture growing up and you know, being a bit different. So, um, but you, you sort of got through it. Um, I would say that it was, it was a, looking back, a positive experience. 
but not without its ups and downs. I'd say the most challenging thing about growing up was, you know, Canada has tremendous opportunities, tremendous schooling. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I sort of had to live a double life to some degree, having, uh, you know, on a personal family level, having do, doing things in one way and then at, the, at school and socially doing things differently. And so I'm trying to balance those two and fit in in both places what was a challenge but quite interesting wow that's that's interesting you said something very interesting that you said you were living double life as a young child how did you manage your life in school and also your life at home because it can be very frustrating and confusing for you and how did you manage that as a young person I mean, it, David, it wasn't easy. <laughs> Looking back, I think, oh, there was ups and downs. There was some pain. Um, there was some joy, <laughs> lots of joy. The key uh, for me was my, my, my parents. Um, I mean, they came here. I recognize they came here to give me a better opportunity. Um, and I had to, uh, you know, I was very grateful to, to them for doing so. And there were certain expectations they had that were sort of, important for them and I recognize that and but but there were certain things that were important to me in terms of having a life outside the home you know building friendships with people from all all, all over the all the world and um and uh they they so I think we sort of came to an equilibrium in terms of them giving me enough space but me also being respectful of traditions and certain expectations but it wasn't easy there was a lot of give and take and ups and downs and heartaches along the way, but I think you just sort of evolve and learn along the way. Embedded in what you said now were so many things. You said there were lots of pains and lots of joys. Um, you said your parents came here to give you a better opportunity. Now, looking at your journey to where you are today, some people may think, okay, maybe because you're here today because you went to some of the best schools, your parents paid for some of the best high school or university or you had special special upbringing that got you to this point. What would you say to that? Can you take us through your upbringing, the kind of family, maybe probably your parents were very rich and um, you grew up affluent in, in affluent neighborhoods and all that. Can you, can you take us through that journey? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say uh, we were affluent. I would say we were solidly upper, maybe upper middle class growing up. Uh, my parents were both professionals and that's how they got to Canada. So mm-hmm. I'd say it was not like there was hardship uh, mm-hmm. economically, but uh, certainly it wasn't, it wasn't a privileged um, childhood, uh, but it was a comfortable one. And, um, and so that, that certainly um, gave me a little bit of a head start, uh, to be frank, and uh, uh, that, that helped me along the way. For sure. Um, when you say you had the head starts, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I mean, obviously, like we, we didn't have to worry about day-to-day expenses as much. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I could focus on things like schoolwork without having to get, you know, uh, part-time jobs until I was a bit older. Um, so that, that sort of lessened the burden to some degree. Uh, so it was less stress uh, uh, along those lines. Um, they, they, they had generally stable careers, uh, so we didn't have to worry about uh, you know, losing jobs and, and scrambling and things like that. So it just, just the stress level was lower, so that it enabled me to focus a bit more. Hmm. Okay. So let, let, let me drill, drill a little bit into the, um, a statement you said now. You said you didn't get part-time jobs until you were older. Um, but there's a school of thought that for you to be able to get um, 
into good companies or get good jobs after graduation from university. You should have experience doing internships, co-ops while you're in the university. Be very studious, focus on your academics, take on leadership roles so that you can prep yourself for those opportunities in the future. Was that how it was for you? Or if you can tell us more about that, or if you can if give us an insight into your, your own journey and also maybe your own advice. Yeah, so I, I do think it's important uh, to do par- uh, work um, and get experience. Um, so what I meant earlier in terms of uh, part-time jobs and, uh, and such, I actually did... Uh, um, up through my, through high school, right through high school, I used to deliver the newspaper every morning. Uh, I used to get up at 5.30, 6 o'clock every morning, uh, do a paper route around the neighborhood, and then get ready to go to school. Um, so I think that was actually useful because it sort of, sort of gave me spending money independence, uh, mm-hmm. not my parents, but also t- taught me a lot of responsibilities. I mean, if I didn't get the newspaper there on time, there would be a complaint. Uh, people expect their new <laughs> newspapers, right? So yeah. So that sort of results in a sense of responsibility. And then throughout university, I did work in the summer time, uh, primarily did telemarketing work. Uh, And that's, that's a challenge because um, you have to deal with a lot of rejection. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are both sort of shaping experiences that I think were important to me. I don't know if they were vital in me getting a job after graduating, but I think they're certainly vital in my success thereafter. Mm -hmm. Considering the fact that you grew up in a upper middle class household, um, was it because, did you have to take on those responsibilities because your parents encouraged you or you took on those responsibilities because you wanted to have extra source of income or because you wanted to be able to get that experience? Yeah, it was, it was more on the uh, just having spending money and not having to ask my parents for it and telling them, <laughs> telling them, what I'm exactly going to do with it. <laughs> Maybe I just wanted to go to the arcade and play some video games, <laughs> uh, you know, buy, buy some chocolate bars, whatever it was. It was, uh, it was just more like having some level of ind- independence. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think to some extent that shipped uh, a mindset in you, but um, we'll get to that in the course of this conversation. So let's go now to your university. I also saw that you add your BSc in actuarial mathematics. What led you to study actuarial mathematics? That's interesting. I had never even heard of it up until maybe six months before university or just as I was thinking of applying to university programs. And um, I did an uh, assessment um, test that, you know, we answered a bunch of questions and out popped a list of suitable professions or potential suitable professions. And actuary was one of them. And I'd never heard of it. And so I started to look into it, um, including contacting uh, a practicing actuary and understanding you know, what his day-to-day work was um, and just understanding what, what, what it all entailed. And I was you know, intrigued by the fact that I really loved mathematics. Um, but, but this was an apply, a way to apply mathematics in the, in a business, in the business world. So I was sort of intrigued with the, the combination of uh, something that's quite technical and up my alley because I do like the technical analytical uh, subjects, uh, but in a practical business oriented application. And so it, you know, it seemed, seemed quite interesting. So I went into it, 
you know, thought about it as I was going along, you know, always consider, is, am I in the right thing? And always concluding that, yes, it was the right thing. And so I, I think I was a bit lucky, actually, but I found it and didn't have to try different things. How did you find it? Do you mind telling yeah, as I said, yeah, No, as I said, it was, it, was, it was strictly an assessment that I wrote. And it said actuary as one <laughs> potential profession. So with a number of professions, I think a computer programmer was on there. And there was a few, a math teacher, if I recall, was on there. And again, that was actually, I think on that list was the only profession that I had not heard of before. So it just required me to do a little bit of research. And as I said, the more I looked into it, the more intriguing it was. I decided to give it a shot. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's interesting. And did, did, what, what did your parents say when, when you told them that, Oh, dad, mom, I'm studying actual mathematics. Uh, they weren't sure what it was to be honest with you. I had to explain it. Uh, they were a little afraid I was going to sell life insurance, <laughs> but not that there's a bad, I think life insurance salesmen actually are, are some of, that's some of the most, the toughest jobs. Yeah. And I really, the people that are good at it, I, I, I bow down to them because they're, they have tremendous skills. Um, but you know, they, they thought it could be a sales in order to job and, um, you know, they being professionals themselves, they, they were sort of unsure about it. Um, but they, 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 well, as we talked about it, looked into it, um, they, they also had a, uh, a friend of the family that was, uh, a friend of a friend actually of the family that was an actuary and, uh, you know, it, 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 it seemed okay. Oh. I mean, there was there was pressure before that, you know, to the usual immigrant parent pressure, yeah, medicine or or engineering, something like that. But um, I think my parents were generally understanding on this and gave me some space. That's good. In my in my little experience of interviewing people for this podcast, I've noticed a particular trend that people whose parents give them the opportunity to choose their own direction and also support them even though they ask questions they tend to to do well maybe the statistics may be maybe skewed because i've not i've not spoken to tons of people so it may not be well representative um data but um that's that's what i've seen but anyway so let's, let's... i agree completely actually that's the way that's that's the way i'm sort of raising my kids right now is that <laughs> i felt actually i didn't do that well in school at high school initially um because i felt my parents were sort of forcing me to do certain things. They, as I said earlier, they wanted me to be a doctor and you know, do biology classes and th- things like that. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's actually when they sort of let go a bit and said, why don't you figure out what you want to do and go for it? Mm-hmm. She did well because I felt I owned it. It was, it was on me to be successful. I'm not doing it for someone else. I'm doing it for myself. And I think that's an important uh, perspective to have. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for also pointing that out. So can you take us through your experience in the university? while you were in university as an actuarial mathematics student, did you know the career paths you wanted to take and um, the direction you want to go? And also if you can just give us like a quick snapshot of how university days was like for you. I, mean, I had a very good university experience. Now I did stay in Montreal. I grew up in Montreal. I stayed and went to Concordia University. Uh, so I lived at home. So I didn't necessarily get the full university experience of being in residence. Um, and sometimes I regret not doing that. Uh, but it was it was good in, in that it's uh, it was a very multicultural environment. Uh, there's people from all over the world um, it, in, in a pretty cosmopolitan city. Um, 
And so it, it was positive from that perspective, made a lot of great friends who I you know, still keep in touch with. Uh, the, the program itself was quite technical, uh, a lot of math classes, stats classes, computer science classes. Um, so it was uh, engaging from that perspective, but, but quite technical. Um, but again, it was right up my alley. Um, so I, I, as I said earlier, I'm sort of an analytical technical person. So I was able to do pretty well at school. That's great. So now let's um, talk, talk about post-university. You're currently the head of North American Legacy Business at Manulife, and you started at Manulife in 1995. Can you please talk to me a little bit about your history, um, for example, the roles you've had previously, and what's led up to this one? If you can take us through your career journey. Sure, David. Uh, so I've taken a number of different roles in my career, in, including both technical roles and general management roles. I've especially enjoyed the roles that sort of took me outside my comfort zone. So this includes moving for, um, from Toronto to Boston after Manulife acquired John Hancock, which is a U.S. life insurance company. And the team I was leading, I was coming from the Manulife side, the team I was leading was, was almost entirely from the John Hancock side of that acquisition. Uh, so I had to sort of deal with company culture differences and, and getting people on board. I also moved to Singapore uh, as the CEO of Manulife's operation there. And I, I turned the business around from a sleepy one to Manulife's, one of Manulife's most successful businesses. Um, as you said, I, was, I've been, I started Manulife in 1995, but I also left the company in between for a few years and had to reprove myself at another company. So um, that, it was great to get a different perspective on that. Um, so generally I, I've liked to push myself out of my comfort zone in my career. Um, I, you know, the different, the different things, but the key for me is just to keep pushing, learning new things. I, I'm an introvert by nature. Uh, well, a lot of actors are introverts and, you know, in Singapore, I had to get in front of, uh, up in front of the audience, uh, uh, 2000 life insurance agents and motivate them giving rah-rah speeches to sell life insurance. And that is, totally outside my comfort zone. But mm -hmm. I, the more I sort of push myself to do that, the better I got and the more flexible in terms of different types of roles I could get in the future. And so that's, that's generally been my path is try, try and you know, do, do something for a few years, keep, and then move to something else that sort of expands upon that, but pushes me outside my comfort zone, allows me to continue to grow. So for some of our listeners out there, they may be saying, okay, um, Navid, you give us a very high level summary and snapshots of your career journey. But if you can take us through what are some of the strategies or some of the things that has helped you to navigate your journey? Because some people may be saying, okay, I work very hard. I do my best in my, in my role. I deliver excellent work, but it seemed like I'm stuck at a certain position. What strategies can you tell me that has helped you maybe by sharing your own career journey, how you navigated to um, a senior leadership level? Yeah, I think you mentioned some of the things that are sort of prerequisites. You have to work hard. You have to deliver good results. Those, those are necessary, obviously. Those are sort of table stakes, as I would call them. I think what is important is for someone to take control of their career and be in charge not rely on, okay, I'm just going to do great and people will notice that. That sometimes happens, but oftentimes it doesn't happen. So I talked about stretch assignments. There was a situation where I was working for, for someone and my boss, basically, he basically resigned 
and went somewhere else. And they were looking, it was a big project we were working on and they were looking to fill his role. Uh, I basically, I just volunteered and, and just said, I, I will take it on. I'll take, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, just give me a chance. And so I, I sort of lobbied and stepped up and I was given the chance and it was a successful project and that sort of helped me along the way. And part of that, uh, actually, I, I, I met someone who became a mentor to me and it's always good to have mentors or sponsors, someone uh you know, people that are more senior in the organization or elsewhere in the industry that can help guide you. Oftentimes when I've had to make career decisions, I've, I've relied on their advice. And oftentimes uh, they've vouched for me and sort of recommended me uh, for roles. So it's always important to invest in that, that sort of networking aspect, specifically with people that are, you know, have, have, have some level of seniority and authority. Combination of sort of me volunteering and pushing myself and, and sort of the networking, I think are two things that for me that have helped me quite uh, along the way, in addition to have, you know, continuing to deliver. You mentioned two very interesting things. You spoke about mentorship and networking. How do you choose your mentors? Do you just go to them and say, hey, I want you to mentor me? If you can give us a practical example of how you've chosen your mentors in the past and what are some of the practical steps that you have used that has worked for you and also some people that you mentor now what made you to become their mentor yeah my approach was generally informal um so obviously when you're in a business environment you're observing you're you're being observant of how different leaders act um you see some unprofessional things you see professional things and i'm you know I, i really if i see someone who's really handling things in a way that i respect, uh, you know, dealing with conflict, uh, you know, encouraging collaboration, um, you know, delegating, empowering people, and not necessarily micromanaging. So some of the elements that I, I think of as a great leader, if I, if I spot that in someone, I will try to, you know, uh, make a connection with that person, um, you know, socially, you know, talk about business, and just keep an ongoing dialogue going. And so for me, it's more like that sort of informal mentorship. Um, and then, you know, as it, you know, ask them about career advice, uh, for career advice, et cetera, as opposed to formally asking them to be a mentor. I, I've generally stayed away from that. I, I just like the informal. It creates less pressure and it's just, you know, it's more natural in my view than a forced uh, mentorship formal program. Mm-hmm. So I, there's been a number of people throughout the years where I, that, that's been the case. Um, for me, and I think there's been a number of people that's been the case for others that have worked with me that have wanted me to help them along the way. That said, uh, there have been people that have asked me for formal mentorship, um, and usually, like, it depends on obviously the person and what they're trying to get out of it. Uh, sometimes I've said no where I didn't think it was a good, it was it was a great use of either of our time um, in terms of how I could help them. But if I felt that there was a uh, it was a good. It was a good use of time, and I've got a number of them going on right now. Um, I'll be happy to do it. I, I really enjoy working with people that want to, you know, push themselves, improve, looking for feedback, or take honest uh, adv- advice in a constructive way and not get defensive. Um, so, if there's some someone like that and who you, who I feel has a lot of potential, uh, then um, I will definitely. Uh, take them on. Um, in fact, I'm mentoring someone right now who's, a senior per- who's become a senior person at Many Life. When, when this person first started 
they were a junior co-op student. And I saw some, you know, a lot of potential there and we, we kept sort of networking and it became a formal mentorship. And now this person's a, a very quite senior person in Manulife. And for me, actually, that was, there's no better feeling in the world. I mean, I can, I've had my own successes, but when you see someone that you've helped along the way succeed, actually, that, that's even, an even better feeling for me. You, you said something now. You said when you see potential in them, how do you spot potential? How do you know that, okay, this person has, if you, I, I know you've, you've, you've said that, but um, if you can just give like a, a deep dive into how you spot potential that, okay, this person has the potential, I'm going to support them along the journey. Um, do they have to work closely with you or is it just by your conversation? Yeah, it could, it could, I mean, I, I look for people that have a passion, like uh, that, you know, sort of push the envelope, ask questions, you know, why are we doing certain things? Is it because we've always been doing them? Um, you know, question the status quo, um, are, are not, uh, you know, are not complacent on, on, on things. If I sort of see that behavior, uh, you know, whether it's someone working for me or somebody on the team in a broader environment, uh, that's the kind of thing I, I really like. Um, I think that's that's sort of the mindset that's needed. We're, I mean, we're in a rapidly changing world, and you need to have people that can navigate that and are comfortable with that, and um, you know, have a passion for that. And so, those are the types of basic essentials that I look for. Where do you draw the line between challenging the status quo and being rude in the workplace? Because sometimes people can challenge the status quo, and they may seem like they are challenging the authorities that be. If I if I can use that word, yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen it. and I, I do think there's a line there for sure. What I like is sort of constructive challenge, right? So it's anybody can tear things down. Like we, we can all criticize anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can always come up with reasons not to do things or why things are not you know, are stupid. Those are kinds of, anybody can do that. It doesn't really take that much skill to do that. But I've seen others do that in a very constructive way where they're saying, okay, this, this doesn't make sense for this reason, but why don't we try it this way? This would be a better way to try it in, mm-hmm. in a sort of professional, constructive way. The best approach, and that's the approach I've tried to take, is if I'm going to be cri- critical of something, let's say a strategy at work or a project, I'm going to have I'm going to have an alternative. I'd say this this is the way I, I would. This is how I think about it. This is the way I would do it. Uh, and again, so it's that constructiveness, which for me is the key. Now let's talk about challenges. What are some of the major hurdles that you have faced in your career? And how did you overcome them? Because life is not bed of roses. There are times when there are ups and downs. You know, it's a roller coaster ride. What are some of the major hurdles you faced in your career and how did you overcome them? So major hurdles. I mean, as I just have always pushed myself outside my comfort zone. And so sometimes when you do that, you're getting to situations where you're not comfortable or you haven't dealt with the situation before. You do not know how to react. So uh, uh, there, there's been times where I, I felt, you know, I got into a level of authority where I felt that I was starting to get being taken advantage of because maybe I was running a, running a line of business where I didn't have all the experience and uh, people were starting to take advantage of me of that result uh, as a result of that. So it's, it's important to recognize that, not deny that, uh, be humble and recognize that, you know, I don't have all the answers and maybe I need to reach out for help. Maybe I need to talk this through with others that are, have more experience um, and be open because it's really important to learn from failures. And I've had lots of failures throughout my career. Actually, I, I actually have the, I feel that if you're, 
you're not failing a reasonable amount, you're actually not pushing hard enough. The important thing though, is to learn from the failures and what are the lessons and make sure to not repeat them. And as I said, uh, there's, there's pl plenty of those throughout my career. What really bothers me is if I make the same mistake twice. And that, that's, because then I feel I haven't learned, you know, you're going to have these challenges and failures along the way. Uh, speaking of failure, can you tell us a story about a personal failure and how did you make a cost correction? Yeah. Okay. Let me all talk about one when I was, um, in Sing I was running our business in Singapore. So this was one I had just started there. I was the general manager and CEO of the company. And, uh, there was a period of time where I didn't have someone that was running distribution for me. And in, uh, in Singapore, we sell a lot of our business to agents, uh, that are, um, you know, contracted to the um, insurance company. But the way the agency model works is that you have an agency leader and then you have agents that work under that leader and you, and you avoid people moving around and changing uh, agencies or leaders because that just creates upheaval. Um, but there was one situation where there was an agent that came to me um, that essentially could not get along with a leader and asked me for change. And I, I, I sort of, uh, and this was a very productive person in the past who sort of has fallen off quite a bit. Uh, I felt, I, eventually I felt that I became convinced that this person uh, for the good of the company needed to move to another agency. And so I made that happen. And the team, my team, as I didn't have the head of distribution, but I have other people underneath that position did not push back. It just I, I basically said, this is what we're going to do. And they just did it. And that actually resulted in like a lot of talk around the agency, uh, around the whole agency. And a lot of other people started to come to me and said, I want to change too. And so I'd set us actually a terrible precedent and a terrible distraction. And again, this goes back to the point where I realized I didn't really have all the information. I, uh, mm -hmm. I didn't really talk this through. I was in an uncomfortable situation. I made a, a call uh, and the team didn't push back. Because I didn't, I, I just started there. And, you know, in Asia, the, the, cult, the cultural elements are a bit different. But I hadn't really uh, put forth a culture where if someone says something you disagree with, you should sort of speak out, not blindly follow it because they're superior, <laughs> in a superior position. And so that was a big learning for me. And I had to ensure that people recognize that it was okay to push back, especially uh, if... Uh, you know, you, dis you strongly disagree, you, you know what the result will be, like, you should not just blindly accept that. Um, but it was for me to set that culture. And I hadn't quite set that culture. It took a failure like this to sort of get me to start looking at that. Mm -hmm. And how did you um, manage the situation? How did you communicate to them that they should um, be willing to push back? I started to essentially talk, uh, talk about this story. There, there was another one where um, uh, essentially we, we had a situation where if you, if you're at, you're on your at your desk on your computer and you've already logged on to your network, uh, if somebody sends you a link to a, say an, a newspaper article online, uh, and you click on that article, um, you, you have to re-log in. And I was questioning, this is my first week in the job. I, I started questioning why, um, we're doing this. And there was all kinds of reasons given, but ultimately it was, it was a, it was a silly reason. There was no need to actually do this because you've already logged onto the system. It was just creating extra effort for all the staff whenever that happened. And I, I had that fixed and I started to tell that story to the staff when I had town halls with the team as this is the kind of behavior I want. You should question, there may be a valid reason, mm -hmm. but 
um, you should think about. You shouldn't just do it blindly. You should think, okay, this is why. This is why you should always understand the why. And by by recounting these stories, um, by telling them it's okay to push back and challenge. Um, and uh, you know, on this one, I had it fixed, so people saw the result right away, and were like, wow, why did we just do this before? I, I think it sort of starts to instill that culture. And things change for the, for the better, right? After yeah, I think that. things change. I mean, it's, cultural change is not easy all the time, but mm. again, as a leader, if you role model it, I think you can get people to change. You have to live it. I mean, it's one mm. thing to define a culture on a piece of paper and say, this is your culture, but you got to live it day to day and show it. This is the end of part one. We've actually got a lot more coming in part two. I really enjoyed this first part of my interview with Navid. And as you can tell, I had a great time chatting with Navid, and I'm so excited for part two, where we discussed how newcomers, immigrants, and international students can find mentors, how to network effectively with senior leaders, how professional newcomers can get someone to take a chance on them, habits that help Navid to get to a senior executive level, and many more. So stay tuned for part two coming in the next episode of the Fresh Start Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fresh Start. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with someone you know and love. Please go ahead and subscribe on any platform you listen to your podcast. And also please take a moment to leave us a review because that would help us to reach more audience. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at freshstart.org. If you know any newcomer you think would be a good fit to interview for the podcast, we'd like to hear from you please go to www.thefreshstartup.com to nominate someone. We appreciate you and remember, no matter how hard the past is, you can always begin again. Take care and have a great week.